Throughout the entire history of mankind, there's been a war going on between good and evil, between God and Satan. We talked about that in week one. But what we need to understand is that war will not go on forever. There is going to be one final battle, and then God will do what he's going to do. It's not like we're trying to feel our way along, hoping for something to happen. There's a script that's been written, and we're in that script. We can feel it today. We feel that clash intensifying, and that's what we're going to be talking about today and for the rest of the series. But here is the deal. Even if I were a non-theist, I would recognize a couple of facts. Number one, we live in a crazy world, and if there's one word for me, number two, that signifies what we're living in today, the word volatile comes to mind. There's always been volatility in parts of the world. There's been volatility around the edges. But you and I live in a world where there's volatility at the very core. People that study uh, global politics, people who look at the world in terms of geopolitics are recognizing the fact that never in the history of mankind have we had such volatility in regard to leaders. And we're wondering, is there a leader? And so with all of that in mind, we recognize that the place to turn is to the Bible, to God's Word. And in week one, we talked about how that God does something that no one else does. And the Bible is a source for us in an area where no other source exists, and that is that God tells the future. The future belongs only to God, and only God knows the future. Through the years, there has been science fiction, there has been fiction of all kinds to suggest that someone might be able to know the future. And that makes for cool entertainment. But at the end of the day, only the future, only God knows the future. In Isaiah chapter 42, in the eighth verse, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else. Everything I prophesied has come true, and now I will prophesy again. This is one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. I will tell you the future before it happens. I can't do that, you can't do that. Madison Avenue can't do that. ESPN can't do that. No one can tell the future except God, but God does tell the future. 26% of your Bible is prophecy. And God made a couple of statements that I think it's important for us to unpack quickly before we go to the rest of the message. First thing God says is everything I prophesied has come true. No one else can say that. People can prognosticate, but as history has shown us, prognostications can either be good or bad. They can be strong or they can be weak. And beyond that, you can even have a strong prognostication that's based on the past and analysis of the past. For instance, on September the 10th, 2001, there were uh, Wall Street analysts who were giving their projection for the future of the markets. But then, of course, September 11th came and all those went out the window. You understand what I'm saying? There's a distinction between prognostication and between prophecy. Only God can tell the future. And in week two, we took that a step further and we said that God has a clock and by God's clock, we can know where we are in regard to the end times. And that clock was Israel. And we talked throughout that whole message about how that God has worked with Israel from Abraham even into our times. And in that message, we learned a very important answer. And that answer is, indeed, we are living in the last days. I preached my first revival meeting when I was 16 years old, which is hard to believe. But I remember in those days, there would be people wind up, most of them young teenagers, wind up, uh, wound, uh, lined up and asked me a question, is Mark, do you believe we're in the last days? I don't believe we're in the last days. I know we're in the last days because Jesus said we are. In a message that he gave called the Olivet Discourse, we'll refer to that in just a moment, but in a message he gave on the, on the, on the Olivet Discourse, it's all about end time things. And Jesus said this, he said, the times of the Gentiles will run, 
and Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are over. And then he said it would be time for the end. Well, you and I live in a period of time called the church age. It began uh, at Pentecost after Jesus rose from the grave. But just a few years later in AD 70, the Roman emperor Titus came and sacked the city of Jerusalem. And from that point on, Jerusalem has been in Gentile hands. And beyond that, we have uh, the Jewish people spread all over the world with no homeland. But Jesus said the end times would come to an end, or come to a beginning rather, when Jerusalem was no longer trodden underfoot of the Gentiles. Well, in 1948, we saw in that message that Israel became a nation. In 1967, they got back the entire city of Jerusalem. 2018, I remember I was at Bella Luna, and I got a notification on my phone that I was about to get a call from the White House. And while I sat at Bella Luna, I sat on a phone call uh, with Christian leaders at the White House, and, and, and with the White House, and, and there was the statement that the United States was about to move their embassy to Jerusalem. And I thought, wow, we're, we're living in times that Jesus talked about. There, there's no question. We've been in those times for a long time, really. I wasn't even born in 1948. I was nine in 1967. But I know we're in the end times. Jesus said, this is how you can tell that we're in the end times. Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In that message, I shared with you the story of how Ezekiel was called out to the Valley of Dry Bones. Now, in this point in time, Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonians, and God was giving Ezekiel a picture of the end times. And these bones out there in the cemetery were not only dry, they were very dry because whoever was out there had been dead for a long period of time. And God said to Ezekiel, can these bones live again? Ezekiel said, I don't know. And God said, well, let me show you. And he said, by the way, these bones represent Israel because they will say in the end times we've been dead for a long period of time and we're, we haven't had a nation. And then at that moment in the vision that God gave Ezekiel, the bones came together and there were sinew and muscle covering the bones. And there's an interesting statement in Ezekiel 37 verse 10. The Bible says that those in the graveyard, that the bones had come together and muscle and flesh had covered their bodies. They rose up and here's the statement of Ezekiel 37 10. They became a great army. Now, what's significant about that is one of the most powerful armies in the world is the army of Israel. Just this year, in the month of July, U.S. News & World Report released a study that evaluated the most powerful nations in the world. Israel was ranked at number eight behind the United States, Russia, uh, Great Britain, France, Germany, Japan. Uh, and and here, you think about this, Israel only has eight and a half million people, the next smallest countries on that list before Israel will be Great Britain and France. Both have about 67 million people. Now think about that for a moment. Israel only has almost 10% of the next largest country, and yet they have one of the most powerful armies in the world. Exactly what God said. God said this would happen in the last days. Israel would come back into the land. They would officially become a nation, become a people, and they would have an extraordinarily large army. Jesus made the call that that's how we will know we're in the last days. Now, Someone will say, Mark, I don't think that there's really any end time. I think the world just goes on. These things have always happened, and so consequently, don't shake us up with this idea that we're in the end times. Things roll on as they always have. Well, I don't know if you recognize it or not, but if you think that, you're a sign, and you're a sign that we're in the end times, because the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.3, first off, you need to know that in the last days, mockers are going to have a heyday. 
reducing everything to the level of their puny feelings. They'll mock. So what happened to the promise of his coming? Our ancestors are dead and buried, and everything's going on just as it has from the first day of creation. Nothing has changed. So if you have the idea everything's going to roll on as always, you're actually a sign that we're living in the last days. So up till now, we've had two talks. Number one, we saw in week one, God tells the future. In week two, we learned that we're in the last days from Jesus as he referenced God's clock Israel. Today, we're going to open up a discussion of a couple of terms that you may have heard in church or you may have read about or maybe you've seen in movies. And those are the terms rapture and tribulation. I grew up in church and I heard those terms used a lot. And to be honest with you, I heard a lot of speakers that freaked me out and caused me in a lot of cases to sort of pull back from this teaching of the rapture and the tribulation. So I need to let you know that in this series, Clash of Dynasties, there's been a concern that I've had in my heart, and I hope that I live up to this concern, or at least into addressing this concern. And that is, I want us to understand that God always has a purpose. And if we understand God's purpose, what God, God does makes a lot of sense. So instead of just throwing at you a whole lot of prophetic stuff from the Bible, I want you to have a sense of what God is doing in the world. With that in mind, I need to let you know that I have a problem on my hands. And here's my problem. I want to tell you about the tribulation and the rapture. But what's going to happen here is I'm going to give you some specific events that are going to take place. It's almost like you need the whole comprehensive picture for those specific events to make sense. But the problem is I have to give them to you in sequence as specific events. So what I'm going to ask you to do is we're going to ask you to be here for the next three weeks because I'm going to talk about some stuff today that you're going to hear and you're going to think, hmm, that's interesting. But when you see the pattern of God at work in the next couple of weeks, you'll be able to reflect back on today and say, oh, I understand how that fits. So I'm going to ask for your patience and I'm going to ask you to be here for the next three weeks because I'm going to give you a whole lot of stuff and it may not make sense until you see the whole comprehensive picture. Well, we have to start somewhere. So today, let's talk about the idea of the rapture. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not crazy about the term rapture because it weirds a lot of people out. So let's just use the term evacuation because that is what we're talking about. We're talking about a moment in time where God evacuates people who belong to him. Now, there are a couple of reasons, and we, we've seen some, some disaster, natural disasters happen in the United States the last few years. There are a couple of reasons why people have to be evacuated. One reason is to keep them out of harm's way, to keep them out of danger, and that fits. But there's also a reason why evacuation happens, and that is sometimes work needs to be done in a zone where people are, and those people have to be gotten out of the way so that the work can be done. So when you think about the rapture, file this away. God has to get us out of the way, those of us who are followers of Jesus in the last days. He has to evacuate us for both reasons. The first reason is he wants to keep us from the tribulation, from the judgment that's coming on the world. But secondly, God's, God has got unfinished business with Israel. And as Gentiles who are in the church, we're in the way. So for both reasons, God has to evacuate us. So we'll be talking about that for the next couple of weeks. But let's just start at this very beginning point about God evacuating living people from the world. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is addressing the church probably more like American churches than any other, any other churches that he addresses. Uh, Corinth was a city of crossroads, and there was a confluence of thought there. 
There was Roman muscle, there was Greek intellectualism, there was Eastern mysticism, there was religion from the Holy Lands, and beyond that, there was a sort of postmodernism of the times. So for these Christians who are in Corinth, they have been influenced by all these schools of thought, and they had some weird questions. And so God has Paul address one of those questions in 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of the reasons one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And here's the question. The people were all balled up over what happens the moment you die. They didn't know. There were some who thought, well, maybe there's a resurrection. Maybe we come back as some of the life form. Maybe we come back as a squirrel or a nut or a breeze or a feather. We don't know. There were others who said, no, no, no. When you die, you just fade to black and it's all over. So it is into that context that we have 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just want you to have an understanding of the scriptures that we're about to read and how they fit into the discussion. You ready? Here we go. We're going to pick this up in verse 15. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Very strong statement. You can't go to heaven like you are right now. I mean, your body cannot, I mean, for you to try to go to heaven in the body you're in, it'd be like putting a jet engine in a Volkswagen. It just would not work. So you cannot go to heaven the way you are. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Now, the Greek word for mystery here is mysterion. It's not a mystery like an Agatha Christie mystery or a Tom Clancy mystery. The word mysterion means something that you could not know other than God revealing it to you. Hey, do you ever read in the Bible something that you figured out before you read it? I mean, for instance, I read in the Proverbs about how to have a successful life. And sometimes what I read there, I figure it out from life. It corroborates what I've experienced. But a mysterion isn't like that. It's something that you could never figure out no matter how hard you tried to think. This is something that has to be revealed by God. So Paul is saying, look, flesh and blood, the body that you're in right now cannot go into heaven, and I'm going to give you a mysterion, something that you could not know other than God's revelation. And here it is. We will not all sleep. Well, sleep is a euphemistic reference to death. You find that almost consistently throughout the New Testament. So Paul is basically saying, we will not all die. That's a mysterion. Because I will tell you my experience in life, the statistics on death are one out of every one dies. I have never seen anybody get out of this life without dying. So that's a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash. Now, when I was a kid growing up and I listened to my dad preach, I've been honest with you about this. Faith comes hard for me. And so I would hear my dad preach this kind of stuff, and I would think, I don't know about this rapture business and stuff like that. And I would think, but you know what? If I see him coming, boy, I'm going to pray right then. (laughs) Don't laugh at me. Some of you thought the same thing. (laughs) Now, here's our problem with that, because the Bible says that when this happens, it will be in a flash. The Greek word is A-T-O-M-O-S. You know exactly the word we get from that, don't you? The word atom. But I want you to understand, the, the, the Greek word for, to, for time is tomas. The negative prefix a means without time. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a unit of time that is so small that it cannot be divided. A second is a small amount of time, but we can divide it because we have milliseconds, don't we? But this time in which Jesus returns and the change happens... 
happens so quickly that it's in a time unit that cannot be divided. So let's go back and read verse 51 again so you get the whole feel. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in an atomos, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. So what do we pick up from that? We picked up that we can't go to heaven like we are. Most people are going to experience the change through death, but there are going to be some people who will be changed without experiencing death, okay? Fortunately for us, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, this gets expanded. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. I'm going to tell you something. This is really important because we're talking about the rapture today, but I want to just tackle something. What happens to your loved ones who have died? Are they asleep in the ground? Are they with God? This is one of the most important scriptures in your Bible about it because we get told that God will bring them with him, but they will rise from their graves. This is brilliant because it's not like the Bible is contradicting itself. This is all in the same paragraph. But we learn from this text what does happen to our loved ones who have died. First of all, think about the expression that God will bring them when he comes. If you're having a backyard barbecue and I say, hey, I'll bring the potato salad, you understand grammatically what I, you, you know where the potato salad is. It's with me. I can't bring it unless it's with me. If it's at your house, I can't bring it. I can only bring it if it is with me. So when the Bible says that God will bring them with him, it must mean that our loved ones who have died are with God. Otherwise, he couldn't bring them. But in the same paragraph, it says they will rise from, the, from their graves. Well, what's the answer to that? The answer is their soul and spirit go to be with God, and the body sleeps in the ground. You say, well, how will God put it together? Well, you know already it's going to happen in a tomas, in a unit of time so small it can't be divided. I think one of the saddest things that I've encountered is to run into people who have faith in God but believe that their loved ones are asleep in the ground. I was teaching on this in North Carolina a couple of weeks ago, and I was teaching 10 reasons why you don't have to freak about dying. That's an interesting sermon title, isn't it? And when I got through, an elderly lady met me at the front. Her son had died at the age of 50, and she said, I'll never forget this as long as I live. just happened a couple of weeks ago. She said, do you mean to tell me my son is not asleep in the ground? And I said, no, he's with God. And I looked at the joy that came through her tears as she recognized the fact that her son is not asleep in the ground. Well, that's not my talk today, but that's good stuff, isn't it? <laughs> I love that. Let's read it again. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First the Christians who have died will rise in their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Well, there are those who say, I don't believe in the rapture because the word rapture is not in the Bible. Hence, I would say there are no English words in the Bible. <laughs> the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. 
So there are no English words in the Bible. If I had a nickel for every stupid thing people have said in church, I'd be a wealthy man. (laughs) But those words caught up are where we get the word rapture because when the Greek was translated into Latin there, the Latin word was rapturo. That's how we get the word rapture, but it comes from those two words, caught up. So together, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So what have we pulled out from all that? Well, we pulled out that there will be people alive when Jesus comes back. And that we will, those who are alive, if we are among that group, will go to heaven without dying. Someone will say, well, Mark, I don't know about that. You know, my experience has been people all die. Well, I want you to take three things into consideration this morning. The first one is we probably don't understand death. The reason why we don't understand death is we see what is left over. You know, when someone dies, what do we see? Well, they put them in a box and they put makeup on them try to make them look alive, which is cool. I think it's a great thing to be respectful. And, and, you know, it's kind of freaky what we all go through, but we have this memorial service, and people come by, and they say silly things at the casket, like, don't he look natural? No, he doesn't look natural. Death is not natural. But you see, the problem is we're trying to cope with what is left behind. And so because of that, when we think of someone dying, we think of death as being the cosmic stop sign. It's like, okay, their life is over. We put them in a box or, we, or they were cremated and we spread their ashes. Guys, could I talk about a pet peeve right now? You know, I go to funerals these days and a lot of times they're two and three hours long and it's just people talking about, oh, this cool story about their life, everything. Listen, If you have my funeral, I mean, I don't really care that much about what someone says about the life that I live. Talk about the hope that I have. I'm going somewhere. Don't just talk about these few years down here. Talk about where I'm going. Hey, if you don't have any hope, then let people talk about, you know, how you like this and like that and funny stories about what you did on a camping trip and all that stuff is okay, I guess. But man, do you have any hope? Well, that's, anyway, that's not my sermon today. You guys are the only ones who got that. I didn't do that in the other three services. So the first thing is we don't understand death. Because, see, death is not about stopping us. It is about what we read about. It's about the change. (laughs) You won't understand this unless you're a baby boomer. You have to be at least 50 to know this. For some crazy reason, when us baby boomers started being born, there was this euphemistic attempt to explain life. For instance, people didn't use the word pregnant anymore, the word expecting. And there was just some strange stuff that went down back then, you know? And, and so I, I remember, well, this is not what I want to say, but I, I remember a story about a little kid. He went to his great-grandmother and he said, hey, great-grandmother, where did you come from? She said, I floated down on a pink cloud to my mom and dad. So he said to his grandmother, grandma, how did you get here? She said, they found me in a cabbage patch under a cabbage leaf. And he went to his mom and said, Mama, where did you come from? She said, the stork brought me. He went and said to a friend, you know, this is a weird thing. There hadn't been a natural birth in our family for three generations. (laughs) Well, that's sort of what it was like. But I remember menopause used to be called the change. I'd hear people talk. Women would give each other knowing looks. She's going through the change. I didn't know what to expect. Now, the change is not menopause. 
I got three, three, three points about the change. Number one, it's a good thing. Number two, male and females are going to go through it, and that's how you're going to get into heaven is you're going to go through the change. <laughs> Look at Job 14, 14. Job called this. He said, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. So do you see what I'm saying? If we look at this idea of God rapturing us or evacuating us out, it can seem really freaky until we understand, we don't really understand what death is about. Death is about the change. The second thing that I think is really important for us to take into consideration is, suppose God wanted to completely change the paradigm. Suppose that God wanted to get the church out of the way and work again with the nation of Israel. He could not afford to wait for us to leave this world gradually as we would through the natural process of death. He would need a cut point where he could get us all out at the same time. Third thing is that God has given us a couple of examples. I won't go into these at length, but there were two characters in the Bible who left this world without dying. One is Enoch. In Hebrews 11, verse 5, the Bible says it was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. And then the second person, I won't read this, this is in 2 Kings chapter 2, is Elijah. In the book of Revelation, the Bible does seem to talk about two witnesses who witnessed for God during the tribulation period. There are those who believe that they are Enoch and Elijah. I don't know that. It's an interesting thing. But it just, if, you, if you're here today and you say, Mark, this idea about God taking people without dying, I would ask you to take those three things into consideration. First of all, we don't understand death. Secondly, what happens if God wants to end the paradigm and start a new paradigm and he can't afford for things to happen gradually? And the third thing is God has done this before. Okay, someone will say, Mark, suppose I'm open to the idea. Suppose I'm open to the idea that in this clash of dynasties, knowing that we're already in the last days because Jesus said we were, and knowing that God tells the future, and knowing that there are going to be people who are going to live this life without dying, and I might even be in that time frame, what do I need to know? Well, I'm going to talk about this next week too, but I want to give you two really important statements that Jesus made. The disciples came to him one day, and they asked him a question that really was two questions. They said, tell us, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they've asked him, tell us how we'll know we're in the last days and tell us what will be the sign of your coming. Well, that's what started the Olivet Discourse and we've already seen that he answered the question about the end of the age by saying, you will know when Israel comes back into their land and Jerusalem is no longer in Gentile hands. But they have also asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, if you read the Olivet Discourse, and probably the best place if you want to look is Matthew 24 and 25. That's Jesus talking about the last days. You'll notice that Jesus talked about several signs that would be in the end times. He talked about earthquakes, wars, revolutions, and global shortages, and all those kinds of things. But if you were to back me into a corner and say, Mark, when you look at what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, what would be the quintessential sign that we're in the last days, right before Jesus comes back? I will pull these words from Jesus' statement. You ready? This is what do we need to know today. Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said, you want to know what things are going to be like right before Jesus comes? 
He said, like it was in the days of Noah. And he goes on to say they were doing normal stuff. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and all this stuff right up until the time that the flood came. Well, that's a good thing for us to consider. What were things like in Noah's time? If I want to know if we're close to the coming of Jesus, then I'm going to realize that it's going to be like it was in Noah's day. But Jesus didn't stop there because he said it would also be like another set of times. In the Gospel of Luke, he said the world would be as it was in the days of Lot. So for me, as someone who has spent my adult life studying prophecy, if I want to know when Jesus is going to come back, I'm going to look for those two things. I'm going to recognize this is going to be like it was in the days of Noah and like it was in the days of Lot. Well, in the brief time that we have together, what were things like in Noah's day? We find that in the book of Genesis chapter 6. It's amazing, isn't it? We're talking about the end. It's amazing to me how much we go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, the Bible tells us the world was corrupt. Now, the, the Hebrew word there means ruined. Let's read it that way. The world was ruined. God had made it, and we see it in the Garden of Eden, but by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, God looks down, and the world is ruined in God's sight and was full of violence. A lot of bad stuff going down in Noah's time, but that's the word that stands out to me the most, and it's most often repeated in the Bible, that Noah's times were characterized by violence. Now, I, I know what someone would say. Someone would say, well, Mark, things have always been violent. No, not like this. I read three newspapers every day. I read Dallas Morning News. That's my hometown newspaper. I read Wall Street Journal. I read Wichita Eagle. I look at a lot of news feeds. I want to tell you something. The violence that's in our world today, the violence that's in the United States today is at a level that it's never been before, nowhere close to this. Every day when you look at your newsfeed and you see the crimes that are happening in America, you understand that if those things, the things that you read in just one day, if they had happened in the decade of the 30s, or the 40s, or the 50s, or the 60s, those events would have been the crimes of the decade. Today, they're not even the crimes of the day. I've never in my life seen a time where parents are killing children Violence against children as we have it today. For all of you who are young and look at that and say it's always been that way, no, it hasn't. Nowhere close. I look at the way children are prosecuting violence against their parents. I look at how men and women are violent with each other and neighbors are violent with each other and the road rage and just, just the rage that people are carrying around. But I don't think we've seen anything yet. All you have to do is read the comment threads today to recognize just how much rage people carry. Do you think that's going to be contained in social media? I don't think so. We live in hate-filled, rage-filled, violent times. And Jesus said it would be that way. He said, as it was in the days of Noah. Well, what was it like in the days of Noah? People had ruined the world and the earth was filled with violence. In Genesis 6, verse 5, a little later there, the Bible says the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Have you been to a movie lately? You watch television lately? It's interesting. The Bible says in the days of Noah, it, the, men's of the minds of people, of men and women, was evil, only evil, consistently evil. 
So the Lord was sorry he ever made them, and he put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing. So what do you have in the times of Noah? You have extreme wickedness and violence. You have the judgment of God. But you also have a group of people, Noah's family, who found grace in God's sight, and God protected them and rescued them out of the judgment that was to come. File that away. Now let's talk about Lot. You find his story a little bit later, a few chapters later in the book of Genesis. Lot was a nephew of Abraham, and they'd gotten along okay until after a while they both became wealthy and their herdsmen started to feud with each other. And Abraham said to Lot, hey, let's not be a bad testimony. You go your direction, I'll go my direction. Well, Lot had had his eyes on the Sodom and Gomorrah area because he felt like he would make a lot of money there. But the Bible tells us that the sin of the people of Sodom, it's an interesting Hebrew word. It said that they were vehemently wicked. They weren't just wicked. They were vehemently wicked. They were flipping God off with both hands. So Lot now moves into Sodom, and he's there for a while, and it begins to affect his family. And God looked down, and he decided he was going to bring destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment, but he wanted to get Lot and his family out. We also read what times were like in the times of Lot. This is in Peter, actually, 2 Peter chapter 2. It says that good man Lot was driven nearly out of his mind by the sexual filth and perversity, but he was rescued. Look at this. Surrounded by moral rot day after day, that righteous man was in constant torment. I just described some of you who are living in this clash of dynasties. The moral rot around us is just freaking us out every day. Well, we read one particular instance from the time of Lot. The angels came into the city to rescue Lot the night before the judgment was going to come. But the Bible says before they retired for the night, the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city, surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men, the angels, who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. And of course, they... The men of Sodom were angry at Lot because he wouldn't do that. And in verse 9, they said to Lot, stand back. And they speak of Lot when they say this fellow came to town. In other words, you're an outsider and you came to our town and, and now he's acting like our judge. Wow. Those are the times we live in today. Lot was just trying to tell them, hey guys, this isn't right. And they said, who made you a judge? By the way, when you say what God is saying, you're not judging. God is judging. Now, if it's your idea or my idea, that would be judging. But we live in an age where if you say what God says, that's called judging. Well, that was just like it was in the times of Sodom. The men of Sodom said the same thing to Lot. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, that's how it'll be right before Jesus comes back. And as it was in the days of Lot, that also will be like it was in the days before Jesus comes back. Why is that? Because those were times that were so wicked that God said there is no other resolution other than judgment. And that is what we have with the tribulation period. God looks at this world and says there's no other resolution but judgment. If you want to understand the fight between Satan and God, you need to understand that Satan is always promoting the opposite of what God says. Whatever God says, Satan wants to promote the extreme opposite to that. 
And the culture that you and I are living in today, we're watching that in a full-throated way. If you want to see the world that God created, all you got to do is go back to Genesis 1. But what we read in Genesis 1 over and over and over, when you look at God's paradigm for the world, we're living in times where the very opposite is being promoted. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. But we live in times in which they say there is no God. God is dead. Then, in the beginning, God created. But the, <laughs> the prevailing story is that we are all cosmic, we're all random rolls of the cosmic dice. I went to public school in Texas from the second grade on. I was taught in some measure or some fashion from the second grade that they didn't say God didn't create the world. But the story was I was a product of an accident. Think about that. The Bible says, in the beginning, God, but God is dead. In the beginning, God created. But no, God didn't create. We're all a product of an accident. The Bible tells us that in Genesis chapter 1 that God gave man and woman the task of managing the earth. But today we see that man and woman, that is the problem for the earth. And the Bible tells us that God created them male and female. But we live in a time when that's under attack. It is God who brought the first man and the woman together and had marriage. But now we live in a time where marriage has been redefined. There have been all kinds of viewpoints about marriage throughout the history of mankind, but there never has been systematic, cultural, same-sex marriage until today, until these times. There's some weird stuff from the Roman emperors, and there's some snippets of stuff from, from ancient history, but no culture has ever systemically approved of same-sex marriage until today. And we've seen it happen very quickly when President Obama ran for office in 2008. He said, I believe a marriage is between a man and a woman. But today, if you say what President Obama said when he ran for office, you're a hate monger. No, we're in a clash of dynasties. This is Satan versus God. Well, there are four things that I want us to look at here today, and I'll finish. When you look at the times of Noah and Lot, and you think about our times, the first thing I notice is the choice was clear-cut. There was no middle ground. There was either judgment or rescue. It was either those who stayed in the, outside the ark and experienced the flood. There were those who stayed in Sodom and experienced the judgment. There was Noah's family and Lot's family that were rescued. The second thing I notice is just as God said, he brought total judgment because sometimes God is out of room to negotiate and a culture just reaches the place where it's past, it's past redemption. The third thing I notice is that God rescued his people out of judgment. And the fourth thing, and I'll close with this because I think it's really salient to our discussion today, is that in both cases, even those who were rescued were greatly influenced by the culture that they live in. Have you, have you ever noticed how dysfunctional Noah's family was and how dysfunctional Lot's family was? And yet these are the people that God rescued. Both Noah and Lot got in trouble because they drank. They, they drank alcohol. They had alcohol issues. And on top of that, it affected their kids because in Noah's case, he got drunk. And this was after the flood. He got drunk. He was naked. Something bad happened. The Bible doesn't really spell it out for us. Kind of glad it doesn't. And in Lot's case... 
His wife turned back, looked at the city like God told her not to do that, and she turned into a pillar of salt, and his two daughters decided that they might not have children, so they got their dad drunk and had sex with him and wound up having two kids. All I'm trying to say is these are God's people living in these days, and the culture got into the groundwater of their lives. You say, Mark, why do you end this message here? Because I'm concerned about that with me. How much has this culture impacted me? I mean, I'm a God follower. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe that God wins. I believe that Jesus is coming back for me. But I live in the 21st century, and I'm starting to wonder how much has the thinking of our times gotten into my thinking? Maybe it's a great time for those of you who are God's people to evaluate that along with me and say, by the grace of God, I need to realize there's no middle ground here. I either belong to God and I look at the world the way he looks at the world or I flip God off and I'm going to take my chance with Satan. Two things and I'm through. Here's the first one. If, if you're here today as a new springer, and I know that some of you are guests and, and I know this can be a freaky message, but let me just talk to new springers for a second. You can listen, see if it's salient to you, but I want to talk to new springers. Do you know for sure that you're in God's dynasty? The reason I ask that question is in these last days, the church as I see it is drawing two groups of people. There's a group of people that realize they're flawed, broken sinners, and they have no hope without God, and they know how broken they are, and they recognize that the only hope they have is 2,000 years ago, God came into our world, wore skin, lived a perfect life, and then they see the horrific price of their sin paid for in the person of Jesus hanging on the cross, and they look at that cross and recognize how, how wicked we are and how good God is, and we invite Jesus to come into our lives, and we are forgiven, and even though we still feel and even though we still come up short, we don't want to come up short. We want to live for God. That's the first group. But the second group of people that I keep noticing the church is drawing today is a strange group of people. They misunderstand God's forgiveness. And when they hear the message, they, sort of, it's, they sound like this. It's sort of like, well, nobody's perfect. And I'm a sinner. Yep, I'm a flawed sinner. And I do stuff. And I keep doing stuff. But hey, we're all, no, nobody's perfect, and I got hell insurance. Do you know where I see this, unfortunately? I'm a leader, and I train leaders and, and teach leaders around the country. You know where I see this a lot? I see this sometimes in pastors. Just this week, another pastor who was a serial adulterer lost his church, lost his credentials, but he's decided that he's, he's apologized enough. And so he started a whole new ministry. And for those who question whether or not he's still qualified to be a pastor, you know what he said? He said, God has forgiven me. Deal with it. That's not a forgiven sinner. That's a sociopath. Maybe a psychopath. See, that's what troubles me. I, what troubles me today is that sometimes people are coming in hearing the message of Jesus like, yeah, nobody's perfect, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway, and I'm going to hurt people, and I'm going to cause difficulty for people, and I'm going to live the way I want to live, and after all, I'm forgiven. I can live any way I want to. That's not forgiveness. That's not salvation. That's being a sociopath. Someone will say, well, Mark, are you talking to me? Well, it depends on 
How you ask that question? If it's like, oh no, I'm worried. Are you talking to me? I'm not talking to you. You're fine. You still have a conscience. If you're mad at me right now, yeah, I was talking to you. What do you think? I know it. You know it. Everybody in your life knows it. I'm just saying if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, now is the time to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Not some middle ground, not some, not some doughy, soft, doesn't matter how I live. I'm saying if you follow Jesus, then follow him. You say, Mark, I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, that's the second thing I want to close with today. Hey, I've got good news for you. Do you know what? The truth be told, we're all born on the wrong side of this clash. The Bible says we're all born in sin. But there's a great verse in the Bible, and I love this. This is Colossians 1.13. It says he's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. See, I was born on the wrong side of that conflict. I was in the kingdom of darkness. I was a sinner. But he purchased my freedom on the cross. And then he took me and he transferred me out of the kingdom of darkness. And he transferred me into the kingdom of his son. How do you get there? You get there by asking. By recognizing that we're a sinner. In a way of saying, God, I know I'm messed up, but I don't want to stay that way. And I believe you love me. And I believe Jesus died for me. And I, I ask you to come. I want to join your team. And the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, it's so interesting. People could say, well, Mark, I, you know, I don't know if that's for me. I'm, you know, I, I make $300,000 a year and I'm pretty successful. And I don't know if that belongs to, that's for me or not. Because, you know, I'm at the university and I have a PhD in this or that. Which is, I, I honor that. Well, Mark, I don't know if this is for me or not, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in bodybuilding and I'm in great shape today. And, you know, it's strange, isn't it? People, we could go through all kinds of different life situations that we're in, socioeconomic, racial, educational. You ever think about the Titanic? Remember the movie a few years ago? Titanic, an interesting thing. It was supposed to be the very essence of technology. It was said to be unsinkable. And yet the only thing it did do was sink. First time it went out. <laughs> you know, in the Titanic, there were all kinds of people. There were first-class people. There were the, the wealthy, the lords and ladies that would dine in the fine crystal and the uniformed servants. There were the people in second class. The middle-class people had the buffets. There were the people in steerage, the poor people. There were people working on the crew. There were people, there, there were all kinds of classes of people in the Titanic. But the morning after it sank, in the offices of the White Star Lines in New York, there were only two lists. It said saved and lost. If we look at things the way the world looks at it, we're a very diverse audience. And yet if we look at it the way God looks at it, every person here, everybody in North, everybody watching online, either saved or lost. I don't know about you, but when Jesus comes, I want to be sure that I'm ready to go. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I want to know that for sure in my life, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, you say, well, Mark, I don't understand everything you've talked about. I don't understand everything I've talked about. 
but I know God keeps his word. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're here today and you say, Mark, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, then I'm going to give you a prayer. These aren't magic words, but if you mean them, God will listen. You ready? Dear God, I am a sinner. I am broken. I can't save myself. But I believe you love me. I believe Jesus paid an awful price to forgive me. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Would you please forgive me and make me your child in Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, go to any guest services. They have a box that I've put together. It's got a Bible like I preach from, a book that answers a whole lot of questions that you may still have, and some other cool stuff. They won't hassle you. Just say, I prayed with Mark. We'll get back into this next weekend. God bless. See you then.